Well, this past Christmas, Corey and I had the idea to buy the girls a bunk bed from Ikea. So we go down to Kent and we get the bunk bed, which of course comes in a box that looks nothing like a bunk bed. It's incredibly skinny and long and heavy. So we get it to the house and my dad and I start unpacking this thing. A thousand little pieces spill out and you know immediately even we, the Eldritch men, are going to need directions. So we look to the directions and if you've ever put anything together from Ikea, you know what I'm talking about. There are no words on them, which is genius because then you don't have to have 50 pages of 20 different languages telling you how to do it. But you just have this picture of how it goes and even though it looks really easy, the picture doesn't tell you you might need like three people to support the frame while you put the cross members in and the pictures don't tell you exactly how the little dowels go in and how deep they're supposed to go. The ideal was, is so much easier to look at than the practical working out of building that bed. Incredibly frustrating. For the past several months, we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And like I've been saying over and over again, I think it's one of Paul's letters where he's just giving us the ideal. He's not talking, uh, writing in response to any particular crisis. He's saying this is how the church can look. This is how God intended the church to be. But as you know, if you start trying to live these things out... It's incredibly frustrating. Like, my life doesn't look like the picture that Paul says it should look like in the book of Ephesians. All right, so case in point, we took the kids to the zoo just this last Friday. So two weeks after I preached the sermon on children obey your parents, fathers don't provoke your children, right, and teach them in the Lord. Yeah, well, Stella was having one of those days, and I'm pretty sure I may or may not have threatened her that a lion would eat her if she didn't get back in the stroller. Um, so, reality is much, much more frustrating than the ideal. And Paul, I think, knew that all of this idealistic stuff he's laying out in the book of Ephesians, he knew it would be very difficult to walk out. In fact, he knew that when we try and live out this new life that Christ gives us, we are going to be met with resistance. Here's what he has to say about it. Would you stand with me, please? As we read Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. And just before I read this, keep in mind that that story that Patrick read happened in Ephesus. This whole weird casting out of demon thing and uh, somebody trying to do it in Jesus' name who wasn't a follower of Jesus. So this spiritual reality of light and dark forces that we can't see, very real in the hearts and minds of these Ephesians. Now Paul writes this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm or to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now in addition to all of this, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Father, yet again we are encountering something in this letter that is very foreign to us. Many have heard this scripture read, have heard it preached on even, more than once. And I pray by your grace that you would help us to resist the temptation to think we know it all. To just let it pass over us. But I pray that you would do something new in us, whether it's the first time we've heard this, or the tenth time, or however many, Lord. I pray that you would do a work in us. That the result you intend by preaching on this scripture would come true in our hearts. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most important things about approaching this particular text, or any text really, is to make sure we are approaching it in context. I've heard so many sermons on this particular passage that sensationalize spiritual warfare with no regard for anything that came before this passage or anything that came after. And I want to suggest that without the rest of Paul's letter in mind, we are going to miss the meaning of what he's saying here. So, any English majors out there? Anybody that... Okay, Patrick? Alright, so for all of you English major nerds, uh, this portion of Paul's letter is referred to as a per oratio, from where we get the English word peroration. And what a peroration is, is in a speech or a letter, it's a summing up of everything that has been said or written before, but not just a summary. It's a summary with a call to action, with an encouraging call to action. A peroration, a peroration. Okay, so that's what people that study rhetoric and all this stuff have looked at this part of the scripture and said, ah, this fits the bill of a peroration. What Paul is doing is summing up almost every theme he's talked about in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. He's summing it up and he's calling us to action. One of the major themes in the letter thus far has been the fact that in Christ, you and I are new creations. We are new creations. And we are called to put on, Paul has said this over and over again in previous parts of the letter, we are called to put on Christ, to put on that new identity. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called as his disciples. Now, near the end of this letter, Paul is summing up all of this putting on language by talking about putting on the army of God. And by using a kind of a military metaphor, what he's doing is giving us a sense of urgency. Like, we're not just putting on new clothes to lounge around in. Like, we're gearing up because there's something big going on all around us. Okay, so it's not just a summing up of ideas, but a call to action. Basically, if you thought becoming a Christian was a way to make your life easier or better or to give you success or some kind of mythical peace, you've got the wrong religion. Now, yes, I believe Christianity will change your life for the best. I believe it is the best way to live. I believe that through faith in Jesus the Christ, my sins are forgiven and I'm a partaker in eternal life. But being a Christian is also to accept that we are called to live very differently than the way the world does things. And when we live differently, like Christ, 
we will meet resistance, and it won't be easy. Fair enough? That's just the, that's just the plain truth. Paul knows this. He knows we're going to meet resistance, and he calls us to the action of standing firm in the truth about Jesus the Christ. Now, as we approach this text about spiritual warfare, there are two extremes that I, I kind of see going on throughout the history of the church and certainly in our world. On the one hand, in our Western secular society, we often give way too little thought that there is anything else that goes on that we can't see or smell or touch or quantify or weigh. I mean, we... We hardly think of anything that's not tangible in our world. We have a really hard time conceiving of spiritual beings and forces. And in most of our secular academic circles and media circles, a couple of things happen when we talk about spiritual forces. One, they're marginalized through humor. So think of the character Kenneth on 30 Rock, right? He's the, the token Christian guy. Whenever he says anything about spiritual stuff, it's... What an idiot, what adults, right? It's, it's not reality. Uh, or we see it sensationalized in fiction and movies. I think what, every year it seems like there's some movie that comes out around October about an exorcism or some, some dude that's going to fight demons and like take them on by himself or even Hellboy, like this demon baby that was found and he's going to fight the bad guys. Like, it, it's just overly sensationalized, fictionalized. But one thing that we can't escape, in the, even in the Western world, is the empirical evidence. Like if you're a historian or an anthropologist and you look at almost every other culture and almost every other time, people have always believed in spiritual beings and in demons. You just can't get away from that empirical evidence. We also can't escape the reality, unless you don't listen to the news or anything, of just horribly heinous things that go on without a real scientific way of explaining them. Why would a mother drown her children, right? How can a human leader strategize and then carry out a plan to ethnically cleanse millions of people, whether it's Nazi Germany or Rwanda or Serbia or the United States Western uh, expansion? How, how, how is that even a normal human thing to do? Science may turn to explanations like mental illness or social, uh, extreme social economic pressures, and those are uh, the causes of a lot of things. But an interesting phenomenon is that even secular journalists or scientists will sometimes use words like, this behavior is demonic, or this behavior is the, the uh, spiritual force of evil has caused this. That's not scientific language. That's the kind of language we use when words fail us. If you fit into this Western mat category, this, this category of, yeah, I don't really give spiritual forces too much credence, uh, you would do well not to dismiss them trivially. Jesus didn't dismiss evil forces. Paul certainly didn't. The early church didn't. And Christians today would be wise not to, uh, to look past these spiritual forces. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, even in our secular West, there are groups today that overemphasize the power and authority and methods of the evil one and his demons. These movements are weird, and I think largely unbiblical. 
They're even dangerous to the life of faith. Certain groups write books about demons, describing in detail how they work and how we can stop them. Uh, All of this is speculation. It's certainly not biblical. In fact, the Bible has very little detail about demons, has very little detail about the one referred to as the Satan, which simply means accuser, has very little detail about the one we call the devil, which means the backbiter or adversary. And nowhere in the Bible are you and I called to fear the devil. Do you know that? Sounds weird. We're called to fear God. We're called to fear God, to revere God. You know, in the New Testament, demons are talked about in kind of two ways. The first way, in the Gospels, they are there to make the point that Jesus is king. When Jesus casts out a demon, yes, it sets a person free. But the big story there is that a new kingdom is breaking into our world. And the forces of evil are done. Okay? So that's one of the ways that uh, demons are talked about in the New Testament. The other way is that we are warned to beware of the wiles of the evil one. Of the way that he works and tempts us. The only way that Satan can ultimately hurt those of us who follow Jesus is to distract us from the mission or deceive us into doing his bidding. So that's why Paul says, beware. Beware. So, my suggestion tonight as we face this text afresh is that we avoid the two extremes of not giving spiritual forces any of our attention and the other one where we over-obsess about it. And this text tonight is going to help us do that. So Paul begins this section of scripture with the word, finally. Summing up, summing up all that has gone before, finally, be strong in the Lord. I'm going to say that again. Be strong in the whom? Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. And in His strength and in His might. Enough emphasis there? Uh, You and I are not necessarily strong. We are called to be strong in the Lord, in His strength, in His might. That's good news. Uh, The word be strong is a present, passive imperative. Let me break that down for you. That means it's a command. Okay, so we're being told to be strong. It's a passive, which means that it happens to us. So you may not feel very strong spiritually. That's okay. The command is to receive the strength of the Lord. It's a passive. It happens to you. So the command is be strengthened in the Lord. And the present means that it's an ongoing thing. So I think sometimes... Maybe guys, I don't know if it's more than women or not, but sometimes I feel like, okay, here's this obstacle in my life. I'm going to man up. I'm going to get strong for this thing. I'm going to start praying more. How's that working for you? It doesn't work for me very well. The, the idea of the present here, this receive strength from the Lord, it's a relational term. So it has more to do with, I'm thinking of John 15, where Jesus says, um, I am the true vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in the vine, you're going to bear fruit. Like it doesn't say go bear fruit on your own. Actually it says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And so think of that relational language as in, in terms of being strengthened on a regular basis from Jesus. It means having a relationship with Him. Relating to Him on a regular basis. Putting ourselves in a position where we're fed by His Word. Where, by the way, you're fed by His community right now. You're being fed. You're being connected. That's part of the discipline of worshiping together. Okay. 
Be strong. When God commands something, He provides the means for it. Isn't that great? He commands us to be strong, but then it's in the passive. So He's the one who strengthens. Did you know, I I could kind of just stop right there. That's gospel. That's good news. That God, when He commands us to do something, He provides it. That's awesome. So, we are to be filled with the strength of the Lord. And then, we are to put on the full armor of God. In the Hebrew Scriptures, that's the, what we often call the Old Testament, God is many times portrayed as a warrior. He puts on armor, He fights battles for Israel, for His people. And so we are to put on the full armor of God. So, what does that mean? Put on the full armor of God so that... We can run off and fight spiritual battles? No. Put on the full armor of God so that we can be Jesus' commandos. No. Sounds like a video game. Uh, Put on the full armor of God so that we can topple spiritual strongholds. Not necessarily. We put on the full armor of God so that, and this is right in the text, we can stand firm. So that we can stand firm. In chapter 4, Paul uses this verb, peripateo, to walk, over and over again. And I've mentioned several times that to walk in the Bible is another way of saying to live. So because of Christ, live in unity. Because of Christ, live in maturity. Because of Christ, live in truth. Walk in these ways. And now, Paul has laid all of that out, this new life in Christ. And he's saying, if you try and walk this out, you're going to meet resistance. So put on the full armor of God... And stand in those ways of living. Stand in those ways of living. The verb to stand is used four times in this section. And standing in the Bible doesn't mean standing around doing nothing. Standing is metaphorical for moving in the same consistent direction. Doing something consistently. We are to live as Jesus' representatives, consistently standing firm against the schemes of the devil. Right? Stand firm. The schemes of the devil. In Greek, literally, methodeos. Come on, method, right? The methods of the devil. And what are these methods of the devil that we are to stand firm against, to kind of watch out for? Well, obviously there's like way more than I could mention in, in a sermon, but I'm going to give us four First of all, after Paul says resist these schemes of the devil, he reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings, but it's against spiritual forces. And one of the methods that the devil uses is to get you and I to stop focusing on him or the evil spirits and to start focusing on other people. And the way that that method works is we begin to demonize people. To say that this government is evil, therefore everyone in it is our enemy. Or this organization, or this movement is bad, and therefore we demonize human beings made in the image of God. So take the, um, the Occupy movement that was so big last year, it seems to have fizzled out around here at least. The big complaint is that corporations are evil. We demonize corporations as these big, almost supernaturally evil monsters that gobble up regular folks like us, the 99%. In reality, though, 
We regular folks are the ones buying the products that these big evil corporations are putting out oftentimes. In reality though, many of us work for these corporations and we're pretty good like citizens and, and, and pay our taxes and are genuinely nice people to others. So not everyone in the corporation then is bad. The problem is not necessarily then the big corporation monster, but certain people who choose to side with the evil one who have sold themselves into slavery of greed and arrogance. So, instead of praying against the monster of corporations, which is a negative way to pray, by the way. When we pray negatively, it's against this, it's against that. What if we were to pray positively? That the people, if we're sticking with this corporation thing, that the people who work at the high ups of the corporation would be wise, would be generous, would have integrity would put on the character of Christ? What if we were to pray that the lower downs would have justice, that they would be treated well, that they would be people filled with the Spirit, that they would bring joy into their work, right? That seems to me much more a biblical way to pray. Like, nowhere else is Paul praying against evil things. In fact, he's praying for the people. Because when you live out the gospel, evil won't triumph. Another method of the evil one is an inordinate amount of attention on the evil one. He kind of likes your attention. He likes it when we think more of him than we ought to. And there are whole groups of people who gather to pray against the devil or to pray against this spirit or that spirit. And nowhere in all of scripture are we called to pray, like get together and just focus on the devil and, and bad spirits. Rather, we are to pray for good character. We are to pray that Jesus would take up residence in our hearts. And that His Spirit would pump through our veins and that we would be different people. That we would be like Him. So don't give the evil one so much credit. He loves that. Instead, pray to the Father who hears us and protects us and fills us with His Spirit, which is much stronger, by the way, than any evil. Okay, so there's two methods. The third method is that the evil one loves to get us to move the boundaries out just a little bit. And what I mean by that is, if you look at, uh, say, Genesis 1 through 11, uh, the way that God creates is with these boundaries. Like, there's light and dark and earth and sea, and there's animals of the sky and animals of the land and animals of the sea, and human beings have boundaries. And one of those boundaries that God gives us is like, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Just, oh, what a blessing. Luscious fruit, good work. He gives us vocation to tend the garden and to care for creation. He gives uh, the man and woman each other relationship. He hangs out with them and walks in the cool of the morning with Adam and Eve. Gives them everything. What does the evil one come and do? Hey, does God really have your best interest in mind? Because I'm thinking that tree of knowledge of good and evil looks really good. And, you know, you can already eat of these other 200 kinds of trees. I just made that up, but however many there were. What's one more? Like, out of 200, was that like 0.5% or something like that? Math people? Um, it's, just, it's just barely a nudge out there. And, and that's kind of how he works. Like, just, you know, just kind of expand the boundaries a little bit and it, it'll be okay. But what happens when you keep doing that is you look back and you realize, like, dang, I'm 10 steps away now from the center. And you're really getting outside 
of God's will. And that, it's that subtlety that the evil one uh, brings to us. Just little tiny temptations. Like he never just rarely comes out and says, hey, hey Frank, I've got something really evil I want to tempt you with, right? Yeah, it's just, just the little fudges. And then the fourth way, and I'll just say this for all of you oldest children, type A's out there, it's kind of the opposite of moving the boundary out. And you say, you know, I want to be such a good Christian, super Christian, that I'm going to move the boundary in. Like, I so don't want to screw up that I'm not going to do anything fun. And you start to think that God is all about you following some rules, and you start to lose your joy. You start to forget that all of creation, these good relationships and the beauty of, look at this place we live in. It's not really for us to enjoy. And that God is somehow keeping track of all the wrong things you do. And that eventually you get to a place where you think you have to earn His love. And the evil one loves to do that. Because one of His greatest weaknesses is when you are fully alive in Christ. When you're enjoying life, oh my gosh, you are contagious. Do you know that person in your life that... Uh, they just exude Jesus because they're so alive and full of life. It, it's just, the devil hates that because those people are contagious in a good way. So how do we stand firm against these schemes? There's four I mentioned and so many more. Well, we take up or we put on the armor of God. Quick word about armor. Paul is obviously a motivator. He's obviously a teacher. And oftentimes in the Old Testament and throughout other rhetoric too, people use military imagery. Sometimes people do it in, like coaches do it for football teams. All right, we're going to go to battle today. Yeah, okay, that was lame. But, um, yeah. So he wants to communicate through this military imagery that... that that we're in a battle, that there's more going on than just chilling out on a Sunday together and enjoying our Christian community and everything's happy. Because you know, sitting where you are right now, that if everything is happy right now, it isn't all the time. And maybe you're really going through something huge. And we need a place where we can be real with one another. So uh, putting on that form of God evokes this idea that, no, we are about some serious business. And a battle is serious business. In the Roman Empire, citizens, uh, male citizens, were often required to serve in the military. So this armor imagery, it was pretty common. And even if you weren't in the military, like if you're a child or a woman, um, you know, places like, towns like Bellingham size would have garrisons of Roman soldiers. And they could come to your house and say, Christy, I want some of those peanut butter cookies, you know, with the chocolate, yeah. Uh, so you were kind of used to seeing them around town doing their drills, maybe even popping in when you're having a barbecue and they would grab, they could just conscript your house for for bed. So it was a common, everyone knew what Roman armor looked like. But I think Paul also uses this armor imagery because in the Old Testament, especially in the prophet Isaiah, God is shown as actually putting on these pieces of armor. Sometimes it's Yahweh, God. Sometimes it's predictions or prophecies about Messiah. But in these images, we see one putting on armor and going to battle for Israel's sake. That's why he's using these images. And I think what Paul is doing in this text is restating what he said before uh, about putting on the image of Christ, the new self, which looks like this Messiah who puts on armor. 
So, one other thing about armor. I don't think that Paul has like some secret meaning with with the different pieces of armor. So what I mean by that is, uh, put on the helmet of salvation. I don't like think that the salvation and helmet go together. Like, well. Salvation and helmet go together because we need to remember in our brain that we are saved. Or take, for instance, the belt of truth. Um, well, we need truth around because belts are tight and we need it close to our core. Like, I, I don't think that there's any connotation um, there. In fact, the term that's used for belt here in the Bible is actually more akin to military underwear. Uh, I'm serious. It's like this leather thing that protects your tender areas. And uh, it has really basic undergirding uses uh, and, and it also kind of helps you keep your robes up so you're ready for action and you can hang a sword from it but it's basically uh, put on the underwear of truth that's kind of what the meaning is here uh, and I, I think the reason that truth and belt are used by Paul here is because uh, in, in Isaiah 11.5, the Messiah is prophesied to come to the rescue and he girds himself up ready for action with what? Guess, a belt of truth. Alright? So we are to remind each other of the truth. And now is as good a time as any to... Say what you can't really see in your English text. That is every one of the verbs in this section, every one of the imperatives to put on the full armor of God. It's all in the plural. So it does not mean, Josh, you put on your armor, and good luck in battle, and Eric, you do the same. It's church. Put on the armor of God. Stand together. And it's church universal, and it's also, hey, local church, hey, lettered streets. You put on the belt of truth and remind each other of what's what. Because everybody here knows that there are times in your life when you doubt. And you need a brother or a sister to come alongside and encourage and speak words of truth. And hear the scriptures and sing the praises. You need the belt of truth together. It's about committing to place and to people and to Jesus. It's you reminding me when I sin that I'm forgiven. It's me reminding you that when you feel like you're walking alone, you are in a community that loves you. We relate the truth to each other and in truth to one another. So the next is the breastplate of righteousness or justice. I'm going to have Ian put a slide up of a, uh, an example of a Roman breast, breastplate. That's what it looked like. You see the, how it might protect you. Um, and in Isaiah 59, God himself defends his people by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And the next one, Ian, is the helmet of salvation. So it's describing God in Isaiah 59 putting on the breastplate and the helmet. And he goes to battle for his people. Because our God is a God of righteousness and justice, we too should behave in a way that seeks justice for other people. People who don't have voices of their own. People who are oppressed. The hidden people that might even be in our own communities, our own neighborhoods, our own streets, our own schools, our own workplaces. 
and we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We should use that word shod more often, by the way. I shod my shoes today. But uh, this is an example of, uh, of a Roman soldier's footwear. And you can see the, the little metal pieces that they, uh, they put in the soles. They're kind of like cleats. And the reason for that is because Roman soldiers hardly ever fought one-on-one. They would go in a big group and they would advance together with their shields up, almost like their combined weight would force into the enemy. And the idea was that a Roman soldier never retreated. In fact, if you're caught retreating, your commander would run you down with his horse and kill you. So these cleats would help you stand firm and advance forward. Okay? And we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel. Again, taken right from Isaiah, this time from the 52nd chapter, 7th verse, which says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness and announces salvation. We are then prepared, by putting on the shotting our feet with the preparation of the gospel, we are prepared to share the good news. So if you are a believer in Jesus the Christ, you have a story. I don't know how to do evangelism. How did God rescue you? How did He change your life? That's a story. And us being prepared to share, when appropriate, the good news of how God has rescued us. That's part of what this is about. Being ready to live the story of redemption and to share the story of redemption. There's good news to be shared that because of Jesus, I have a reason to wake up in the morning. Like, There's a bigger life I'm a part of than just clocking in and doing my thing. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Roman shields were about four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. Pretty useless if you're by yourself because they're kind of cumbersome and people can just go around you. But together, what you would do is, right before battle, you, the, the shields had a leather strip on the outside, a leather sheath, and you would dip that in water. And then people firing fiery arrows from those battlements, they wouldn't catch your whole garrison on fire. You could extinguish them. And you'd link your shields together and advance together. So look at the, just the example that Paul's original hearers would have. They knew that these Roman soldiers didn't fight alone. They fought with shields interlinked. And the shields had little like gutters on the sides, kind of like you've ever done tongue and groove, like I know Karina's extensive remodeling. So when you put in a, a wood floor, you kind of, one groove goes in the groove. The shields linked together. So you are one unit moving forward. The, the side shields protect you from side attacks and the top ones from the arrows until you get into a group of people and then you just start stabbing away with your sword. <laughs> This is a a great example of how we stand in faith together. Interlocked in community. Protecting one another from doubt and discouragement when times are tough. When times are tough, right? Because it happens. Protecting one another. uh, By being with one another, sometimes not saying anything. But just me knowing you are interconnected with me. You're standing with me and you're not going to leave that means the world when your faith is, uh, is in peril. And finally, Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
Greek has a few different ways of saying word. Uh, one way is logos, um, and you've heard of the logos Bible software. It means word. Imagine that for Bible study software, right? And logos is this all-encompassing word. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus was referred to as the logos. Um, but the word here is not that all-encompassing logos. So the the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, doesn't necessarily mean like the whole Bible. What it means is, in Greek, rima. And rima is a specific saying or a teaching. And here, the rima is the gospel. The sword of the Spirit is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. We are not called... We are not called to fight the devil or go to battle against demons. We are called to stand firm in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the rima of Christ. We are to live out the gospel to the glory of God and to the dismay, really, of the evil one. So, all of this talk about putting on armor might falsely lead some of us, especially men who play too many video games, to think that the battle is all up to us. Okay? That would not be good news. If the battle is up to us, we're lost. I want to close with a reading from Isaiah 59 that sums up the good news of what it means to stand fast, to stand firm. The context of Isaiah 59 is that the people of Israel are in captivity in Babylon. They have turned to other gods. And when they have done that, greed has taken them over. And they are not caring for their widows. They are not caring for their fatherless. They are not doing justice. And Isaiah 59, starting in verse 9 the people are lamenting. They are realizing their own sin. And listen to this. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as if it were twilight. And among those who are vigorous, we're all like dead men. It's like this picture of lifelessness, just going through life but realizing that you're not living for God. There's no life in these people. All of us growl like bears and we moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none. We hope for salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Do you know what he's talking about? I mean, do you feel that sometimes? Like, the weight of your own iniquity, your own sin, your own failures, it gets weighty. We've denied the Lord and turned away from our God. And we speak oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. What a hopeless situation. Nobody is standing up for justice. And, and even the people that realize it are crying out, We're lost. We're too weak to do this on our own. Now, the Lord saw 
and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And he was astonished that there was no one among the people to intercede. It just was astonishing to God that there was not one person who would stand up and do what was right. It was almost as if everybody was unable. And then... His own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate. This is God. He put on righteousness like a breastplate. If no one else is going to do what's right, if no one's going to fight for my covenant people, I am going to step in and put on a breastplate of righteousness. And I put on a helmet of salvation. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle according to their deeds so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord as for me this is God speaking this is my covenant with them says the Lord my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring now and forever. If we're honest, we're like these people. Pretty much lost without God. Have you ever had a perfect day in your life? I have not. Father, I am so thankful that you are a God who not only calls us to a higher way of living, you lay yourself down and rescue us when we are absolutely unable to rescue ourselves. I thank you that you give us new life and then you equip us to stand firm in that new life. And yet you remind us through this imagery of armor, of allusions to your prophet Isaiah, you remind us that it's not all up to us. That when we fail, ultimately you are the God who comes to our rescue. You are the God who gave yourself for us. Thank you for that good news. Let it revive our hearts. Let it change our lives. Help each of us to surrender to that good news. To call you Savior, Lord Jesus. To call you King, Lord Jesus. Amen.